Welcome to our sermon podcast here at City of Light Anglican Church. We are a new church in Aurora, Illinois, finding a new day in Jesus. We want to see the light of Jesus rise and shine in our hearts, in our homes, and in our neighborhoods. Thanks for joining us for today's message. Good morning. Uh, You can be seated. My name is Casey Solgos. I'm one of the leaders here at City of Light, and it is my privilege to be able to uh, share with you some of the things that God has put on my mind over the last week as we uh, look at this this scripture um, and and really examine a little more closely Jesus' teaching on the meaning of that parable that uh, Roberto just read for us. So um, if you would uh, just join me as we pray. Father, you told us uh, that you are love and that perfect love casts out all fear. And so I ask, Holy Spirit, that you would fill this place and that you would help us to put our hope in you so as to eliminate all forms of fear in our lives, all worry, fretfulness, and anxiety. Set us free so we can hear your word this morning. We pray this in the name of Christ. Well, as you can see uh, in the, the passage, if you have your Bibles, um, right after the, the parable that uh, we just heard about this, this rich man, uh, as often happens, Jesus will spend a little bit of time teaching his disciples about the meaning of that parable. And uh, in many of your Bibles, you'll probably see that the, the next section, this, this teaching, this lesson, is titled, Do Not Be Anxious or Do Not Worry. Now, I don't know about you, but when I see that, I, I, I'm taken aback a little bit. Don't, don't worry. Don't be anxious. How, how can I not worry? How can I not be anxious in this world filled with war and political turmoil and financial instability and the natural decay of our bodies, and cars, and homes, and the fact that I have two student drivers in my house in one summer, and that my parents showed up this morning, and now I have to change all my sermon illustrations so I don't embarrass anybody. (laughs) Do not be anxious, Jesus tells us, which is really interesting that it follows right after that story the parable of the rich fool. Do not be anxious. So Jesus unpacks what that uh, parable of the rich fool means. And he, he begins this, this next section uh, with this. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, nor about your body, what you will put on. For life is more than food and the body more than clothing. And from there, then Jesus uh, gives some examples from nature about why we shouldn't worry. And then he concludes uh, with this explanation that we're going we're gonna to spend most of our time this morning talking about that passage. And we see that verse in Jesus' command not to be anxious, not to worry. Many translations, that's, that's the word that they use. Um, makes, me, makes me feel like 
I wish I could turn back time to the good old days when our mama sang us to sleep. But now we're all just stressed out. Okay, for the five people who got that, that was, thank you. Uh, my, my, that's, that's a line from a, a pop song that's really popular right now. And I thought I'd get a, a few more people laughing from that. Um, uh, but this morning as we're talking about fear and worry and anxiety, I, I did want to address one thing. Um, you know, in this, in this passage, this particular translation uh, of, of anxious um, is, is more in the, the way that we use it in the common sense, not in the clinical sense. Uh, and, and I want to be really careful as I go into this because, uh, you know, ac- according to um, the Anxiety and Depression Association of America, uh, th- there are very legitimate clinical diagnoses of, uh, of anxiety disorders. In fact, anxiety disorders are, are the most common mental illness. Um, and they affect in some way, uh, according to the statistics, about one in five adults and about one in eight kids. Um, and so statistically speaking, most of you here either deal with anxiety yourself or have someone that you love that's close to you that struggles with like, like diagnosed clinical anxiety. In fact, a, a year, about a year and a half ago, um, I myself uh, began receiving some medical treatment for a mild anxiety disorder. So I know that this is a very pervasive uh, concern. Um, and so I, I want to be really careful with how I proceed in talking about this message because many of the things that we're talking about today are, are not necessarily meant to deal with this kind of clinical anxiety disorder. Okay, what we're talking about is anxiety in the more common sense having to do with being, being stressed out or, or worried, or uh, as Eugene Peterson translates it in, in his version uh, of the New Testament, the message, um, fretting and fussing. Um, the good news is, is that some of the strategies that I want to talk about today, some of the, the principles and the scriptural truths also work to treat some of the symptoms of clinical anxiety, especially when used in conjunction with medical care. Um, but for those of us who, who tend to worry or fret or fuss about these kinds of things in the world, um, these stressors that we talked about, uh, clothing and food and these sorts of things, um, th- there's good news for us. And that's what I want to spend some talk- time talking about this morning. Um, examining why Jesus would command us not to worry or more accurately, as we've talked about over the last few weeks, that, that many of these commands that we've been seeing from Jesus, when he commands something, it's really an invitation. And so really what Jesus is doing is he is inviting us out of anxiety or worry or being stressed out. And what I have in mind when I'm talking about that is that emotional state that occurs in response to trying to control those things that are beyond our control meaning the emotional state that occurs in my heart when I'm trying to press that imaginary brake on the passenger side of the car when my daughters are, are driving. No, all kidding aside, my girls are actually, they're very good. They're, they're quick learners. They're, they're careful drivers. And I, as I often tell them, I'm more worried about the unpredictability of others than their own mistakes. And I, I guess that sort of cuts to the heart of the issue, right? That the fact is, is that driving is always dangerous. Whether you're the one behind the wheel or you're the passenger with somebody who's experienced or somebody who's a novice. 
And I've been asking myself why I tend to feel a little more anxious when I'm in that passenger seat. What is it about that experience that feels so different? And why is it, you know, heightened when I'm there with one of my less experienced kids? And, and I realize that my emotional response comes because of my lack of control. That position, sitting in that passenger seat, threatens my autonomy. It offends my self-oriented my self-centered default. And if we think about it, I think we'll realize that these emotions that we're talking about, this fretfulness, this anxiety, this worry, it's really a response to that. It's when our self-centeredness is offended. So if there's one thing that I want you to walk away from here thinking about this morning, it's this. That generosity And selfless service are the antidotes to greed and worry. And so Jesus invites us into a fuller life, a life where we identify as a beloved child of his and in which we serve so generously that we have fewer things in our lives to worry about. Generosity and selfless service are the antidotes to greed and anxiety, greed and worry. And Jesus invites us to live so generously that we have fewer things in our lives worth worrying about. See, Jesus invites us to reflect and respond. In in the, the lesson that he gives to his disciples after giving the parable of the rich fool, He leaves the lingering question. So am I like that rich man? Do I value myself and my things and hoard resources, both material and emotional? Or do I value others and yearn to serve by giving my resources? After all, that's Jesus's answer to the problem of the parable of the rich fool. After he talks a little bit about uh, how God takes care of the the flowers and the birds. He ends with this by by talking about us in in a similarly endearing way. Fear not, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Bonnie talked a lot about that last week. And here's the antidote. Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens, that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. And so today's uh, lesson continues and deepens our thinking about and our response to this good, good father, this loving father that we heard about last week who is just waiting and desiring for us to ask him for the gifts of the kingdom to show up here on earth. This good father who wants to exchange our greed and all the anxiety that goes with it for generosity, a life that's so attuned to kingdom service that we don't have all that distracting stuff. So I, I've, I structured my, my talk on um, around three questions that I had as I was studying this passage. Um, so number, number one, we'll try to answer the question, why not worry. 
Like, why is that a, a bad thing, right? In our culture, we have a culture that seems to give worry value. A busy schedule is a sign of importance and prestige. A house crowded with materials, goods that we have to, to dust or repair uh, or, you know, keep in storage and pull out of storage, right? It's a sign of prosperity. Isn't there something noble in having urgent things commanding our attention and our emotions? So why shouldn't we worry? Uh, secondly, is God really living up to his end the deal. I struggled with this quite a bit. In, in that teaching, right, Jesus says, look at, the, look at nature around you. God takes care of all those things. And then in, in verse 28, Jesus says, but if God clothes the grass, which is alive in the field today and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? And at the end of verse 30, right, uh, he says, your father knows that you need these things. Seek the kingdom and these things will be added to you. I don't know about you, but I see a lot of poor people in our world. A lot of people who are vulnerable and hungry. So how do we explain that? Here's Jesus telling us that God's going to clothe and feed his people. And I see people starving. So is God living up to his end of the deal? And third, how literally are we supposed to take this teaching? Especially that don't seek what to eat or drink part and the sell your possessions to the needy part. Does Jesus really mean that? So why not worry? Uh, this passage, which I've discovered is unique to Luke, I didn't know that until I was uh, digging in a little bit to figure some things out, um, includes both that parable and the explanation, right? We see that in uh, verse 22, Jesus says to his disciples, therefore, right? And so, so we recognize in the text that, that there's a connection between that parable of the rich fool and the lesson that Jesus gives us. We have to ask, what's the therefore there for, right? Why is it there? And so we see that connection. And here we see this explication of Jesus that worry is a problem that corrupts our relationship with God and it corrupts our relationship with other people. And it's also a symptom of the problem. See, it's like this ugly cycle. We worry, it breaks our relationship, which makes us feel disconnected, which causes more worry. A couple of interesting things I found out about the, the historical context, the, the, the ancient world context here. Um, if you remember last week when Bonnie was talking about the Lord's Prayer, one line in that is, you know, give us this day our daily bread. Uh, and for people in the ancient world, that idea of daily bread was, was quite literal. It was not a figurative expression. Most people had very little, if anything, in storage. They lived, you know, hand to mouth, as it were. Uh, they were just one disaster away from ruin. Each day began by preparing cooking fires, and they prepared their daily food. The ancient world was also intrinsically corporate. It means it was highly communal. Everything from meals to decisions were shared. In fact, uh, one scholar from the Middle East, uh, a guy named Kenneth Bailey, said this, the leading men of the village spent literally years talking to one another. An elder in such a community makes up his mind on even the slightest transaction in community. He decides what he will do after hours of discussion with his 
friends. Now, the reason why I'm emphasizing some of those, that communality part will make sense in just a minute. And the third thing that's interesting, I think, in the context is that in the Old Testament sense, the word fool, uh, as it was used, that, you know, some of you might have thought, wow, God, that's kind of mean. You're calling people fools, right? Because we, we use it as a, as a derogatory term about somebody's intellect or character, um, and this, in, in the context, it wasn't necessarily a demeaning judgment of somebody's mental capabilities. Rather, it was a term that described somebody who was, who was unaware of or blind to the things of God, specifically his desires and his intentions. So with those three contextual things, it's helpful for us to look at that, some of the details of the story. First of all, the, the opening of the story, this uh, man coming to him and saying, you know, Settle this dispute between me and my brother. It reminded me a little bit of uh, Trevor's message a couple weeks ago on Mary and Martha, right? Here's Jesus being, Jesus, the son of God, right? The all-powerful one said he's being asked to resolve a, a sibling dispute. And once again, Jesus gives this answer, the solution that wasn't actually sought for, which I think is really funny, right? He's like, hey, tell my brother to do this land. And he's like, hey, let me tell you the story about greed, right? Jesus discerned the the core issue, right? The heart of it, the issue of greed. And then he responds to that. And the theme that comes from the story about the rich fool is, is that we need to guard against greed because Jesus implies greed causes anxiety, right? Hashtag first world problems. The farm of a certain rich man produced a crop. He talked to himself, what can I do? My barn isn't big enough for the harvest. And he said, here's what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones. Okay, I just shared with you about the communal aspect of this culture. Do you recognize any problems with what that guy's reasoning is? Lately, Erica and I, my wife, uh, we've been working to limit our accumulation of stuff. If we don't have the space, something has to go. We can't fit one more mug in that cabinet. Something's got to go. Can't fit one more t-shirt in the drawer. Something's got to go. Can't find time to exercise or meet a friend for coffee. Something's got to go. This guy took the exact opposite approach. He's thinking, I'm so wealthy, I can't fit one more shirt in my drawer, so I'm going to buy more furniture. No, no, better yet, I'm going to contract with an interior designer and have them redesign my closet. Oh, wait, my closet's too small. You know what? I'm going to add on an entire room to my house just for my closet. You know what? In fact, I'm I'm just going to buy a bigger house. It's like one of those circular children's songs, you know, like there's a hole in my bucket or there was an old lady who swallowed a fly, right? Where things just kind of keep getting worse and worse, devolving. We often make the simple really complex. All he had to do was give away a little bit of his grain, All he had to do was give away that one old shirt and his problem would have been solved. Instead, he designs all these really complex plans so that he can hoard. I'll gather in all my grain and goods. I'll say to myself, self, you've done well. You've made it and now can retire. Take it easy and have the time of your life. Now, despite the sort of creepy third person speaking to himself, um, In another context, in a decidedly American context, this parable might be seen quite differently. It might actually be seen as a a moral illustrating the triumph of American self-sufficiency, right? Work hard, save what you can, and enjoy a life of leisure later in life. As Americans, our instinct might be to applaud him as a remarkable 
self-made man, to name him a, a hero of the American dream. But Jesus' audience recognized that he's actually the villain in the story. This guy is so self-absorbed, so arrogant, he consulted only himself. And Jesus' audience would have recognized him for the villain that he is and, and sort of cheered at the resolution of the story that we might find sort of tragic and unfair when God shows up and says, fool, tonight you die. You saved up all the stuff and your barn full of goods. Who's going to get it? The government and some sort of tax shelter thing. You know, he wasn't sheltered enough. That's what happens when you fill your barn with self and not with God. Is that unfair? Well, only because in our culture we have made greed virtuous. And this parable reveals our own selfishness. It has a much different effect on us as Americans than it did on Jesus' audience. And it, it's a startling reminder of how far away from the identity God wants for us. How far away we are from that. Uh, New Testament scholar Daryl Bach said that greed and the pursuit of possessions constitute one of the greatest obstacles to spiritual growth. Why? Why is greed so bad? All the way back in 378 AD, Cyril the Great, one of the church fathers, had this insight. Wealth blinds us to charity. It's love. Wealth, wealth makes us fools. See, God is love, and, and if Cyril's right and we're blind to love, then we're blind to God. We're unable to see those things that God desires. We can't recognize his interests. We don't share his values, which then causes a life of independent insulation from tragedy. It threatens to lessen our reliance on God. It certainly lessens our reliance on other people, which limits our ability to perceive God's kingdom intentions and work. Greed's bad because it elevates my importance over everything else. And it becomes the very cause of much of the kind of fretful worrying and anxiety that's condemned in this passage. Uh, again, uh, Daryl Bach said that anxiety in this context emanates from the tension we have when we feel that life is out of our own control. It's the product of feeling isolated in creation. You see that cause and effect? We insulate ourselves, we isolate ourselves, we try to control everything, and we feel anxious. And the reality is we don't. We, we can't control these things that are in the realm of God's sovereignty. We can do our best to store up our storehouse or fill up our storehouses, but we never know when disaster is going to strike. And when we isolate ourselves in arrogance and self-absorbed self-sufficiency, it's way too easy to forget this, and this cycle of anxious thinking begins. And that's an old problem, because even way back in 378, Cyril the Great recognized it, and he said that Jesus invites us to abandon unnecessary anxiety, to disallow the frenetic diligence 
that would make us wish to gather what exceeds our necessities. So now we understand the kind of anxiety or worry that is addressed here by Jesus isn't, really isn't that sort of clinical sense, um, even though it might be closely related to that, and it's equally debilitating. But it's that, that kind of anxiety that comes from this mindset distorted by sin into this frenetically self-absorbed life of greedy self-sufficiency. And so Jesus' command is really this loving invitation to walk away from that. Which is complicated because, you know, as, as a parent, I know that there's often that, that tendency to ask your, your kids to do something that, that you're not willing to do, right? The, the do as I say, not as I do kind of, kind of a, an idea. And so we, we see how seriously Jesus is taking this, and we, we see that he's trying to offer us God as a model. But I'm stuck asking, is God really living up to his end of the deal, right? I read this, and I'm reminded of uh, what the psalmist said in Psalm 37, 25. I've been young, and now I'm old, yet I have not seen the righteous forsaken or his children begging for bread. But I have. I have seen people who are hungry and naked and vulnerable. And I know that some of them are believers. So what am I supposed to do with that? As God, the good, loving father that Jesus makes him out to be here. Um, and in other places such as the prayer we studied last week. And to be honest, I don't have a great answer that fully explains all of that. But in my study, I learned two things that helped me come to some peace. Again, relying on what Daryl Bach said, um, he says that the answer lies in verses 31 and 32. Seek his kingdom and all these things will be added to you. For it is the Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. This is an important qualification of the promise because it indicates that God will provide everything associated with the kingdom and thus the provision won't necessarily be material. And this assurance is implied in verses 22 to 31 um, in, that, in the teaching uh, that we ought not worry because our Father always provides sufficiently to do what God desires. The other thing I realized is that Maybe I'm part of the problem. Did you ever consider that? That, that maybe you're part of the problem, that, that your inaction might actually thwart God's intentions to provide for the poor and vulnerable? That your materialistic choices of cheap clothing and certain kinds of food that rely on cheap labor might actually contribute to the injustices that perpetuate poverty in our world? See, the, the sequence of the logic of the passage suggests that it, if it looks like God's not doing enough to meet the needs of the poor and protect those who are vulnerable, then it's likely it's because we, the church, aren't doing enough. Notice that Jesus is teaching about the ideal state of things in verses 22 to 32, right, that end with this call to action. Sell your possessions. Give to the needy. The reality is, is that we are the intended means by which God intends to fulfill his promise to clothe and feed the vulnerable and needy. And our choices, our actions, either bring, either advance or halt 
the kingdom of God. It, it reminded me this, this week as I was preparing this, this, that Matthew West song. Some of you may know it. It's called Do Something, just playing in my head. The opening line of the, of the song is this. I woke up this morning, saw a world full of trouble, thought, how do we ever get so far down? How's it ever going to turn around? So I turned my eyes to heaven. I thought, God, why don't you do something? I just couldn't bear the thought of people living in poverty, children sold into slavery. The thought disgusted me. So I shook my fist at heaven and said, God, why don't you do something? He said, I did. I created you. If we look carefully, we'll see that Jesus' invitation to enjoy this life free of worry is, is contingent upon our being a part of this upward cycle of provision and community. We live responsibly and give generously to meet the needs and ease the anguish of the vulnerable. That gives us fewer things to worry about. And we have the peace of mind that we contributed meaningfully to a system by, God which, by, by which God will, in turn, provide for our own needs. And it's the exact opposite of the rich fool's story. We actually ensure our ability to truly relax, eat, drink, and be authentically merry because we're doing it in community, serving each other, serving the world instead of ensuring our own misery and judgment by choosing to live in self-consumed isolation. So how literally are we supposed to take this? If we want to enjoy the fullness of what Jesus has to offer without worry and anxiety, how literally should we take this teaching? When Jesus says, don't worry about food and drink, what does he mean and what doesn't he mean? When Jesus says, sell your possessions and give to the needy, what does he mean, what doesn't he mean? Well, that first line, don't worry about food or drink or clothing, it doesn't mean don't work. It doesn't mean just like, eh, do nothing and hope that your clothes show up and food shows up on your table. This is not an invitation for sloth and apathy. But it does mean to do something to actively live in community with others. See, Jesus' call away from worry and the materialism that perpetuates it is really an invitation into interdependent relationship with God and others. And it stands in stark contrast to all that I, my language that the rich fool uses. So we see that giving and serving becomes that antidote for greed and anxiety-inducing selfishness. Because giving strips us of our self-sufficiency and serving forces us into dependent relationships. It also doesn't mean, that's that uh, passage, doesn't mean don't possess material goods, like food and drink and clothing, right? It's an imperative to remember that life is more than these things. And it does mean that we should see our worth, our value, our purpose, our identity in Christ and not in what we collect or consume or what we do for our work. Again, Daryl Bach says, living is more than having, being in relationship with God and relating well to others, placing concern about daily needs and beyond in God's hands. That's part of what it means to be in relationship with him. And I've been immersed in that myself. My family has served. We, we've adopted. 
Uh, we've worked for an organization called Safe Families, bringing in children, giving them temporary care. I've served in church leadership. Um, my wife has led Bible studies. We've done small groups. We've served. And we've had plenty of times where we've been in need during those times of, of adoptions. My son's had a number of illnesses. And in those moments, we've been served by building projects and people have blessed us with appliances. I mean, I look around my house and I've got a washing machine that I didn't buy and a garage door that I didn't pay for and a heater, a furnace that I didn't pay for. It's things just magically, you know, by God's provision showed up. I've served and I've been served. So what does that other part mean then? Sell your possessions, give to the needy. Is it wrong for me to have a house and to have all these things? I hope not. I don't think that it means sell all of your possessions and live in destitute poverty. Really, and in, in the, the King James Version actually translates the word as almsgiving. Um, almsgiving was this ancient practice of, of giving gifts to show mercy to the poor. It was taking an action to contribute to those who had a material need. Now, it might mean that we have to sell some of our possessions, but Jesus' audience would have recognized the absurdity of a call to sell everything only to become the one now in need of the food, okay? So we have to remember the virtue isn't in the giving up, but in the generous spirit that promotes it. And it reflects that sensitive concern for the vulnerable. Sell your possessions and give to the needy doesn't mean don't save for the future, but it does mean don't hoard. Uh, one of the church fathers, and I just had to share this guy's name, Peter Chrysologus. I don't think we're related, but um, giving raises the heart of man to heaven. Greed buries it in the earth. Saving for the future is a great idea, but what is your motivation? Is it so you can retire and live a life of luxurious ease? Is it to increase your self-sufficiency? I mean, it might not be the best plan. Jesus says that we should store up things that have a heavenly value. In closing, I just wanted to share with you the, the way that Eugene Peterson translates uh, this last part of, of Jesus' teaching. So I think it sticks in our minds really well. What I'm trying to do here is get you to relax, not be so preoccupied with getting so that you can respond to God's giving. People who don't know God and the way he works fuss over these things. But you know both God and how he works. Steep yourself in God reality, God initiative, God provisions. And you'll find that all your everyday human concerns will be met. Don't be afraid of missing out. You are my dearest friends. The Father wants to give you the very kingdom itself. It's obvious, isn't it? The place where your treasure is, is the place you will most want to be and end up being. So Jesus invites us into that fuller life. Where we get to be in communion with the Father and in communion with others. And this is the good news. This is how the gospel is lived out in this teaching 
a life in which we serve so generously that we have fewer things to worry about. So I encourage you uh, today and this week to take two action steps. One is to look around you and, and notice what God has already done. I, well, I walked around my house and I took an inventory of the, the bunk beds and uh, the, uh, the, the bathroom that was refinished in my house. And, 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 I, and I tell people about it. Remind yourself, tell your friends, families, tell strangers the narrative of how God showed up and provided for you. Testify to the good things that God has done. And then consider prayerfully what changes in your life that you can make to become more generous. Do you have a storehouse of plenty? What will you give from it? Are you feeling spent? Then what can you do to fill your heavenly money bags with deep resources from God himself? Maybe you need to donate some quality items to Wayside Cross or cancel that Dish Network service so you can give their money to a, a ministry. Maybe you use your vacation time for a short-term mission trip or relinquish your me time to be more relational with your kids and neighbors or a friend from church. What sacrifice will you make to alleviate the anxiety of a needy brother or sister? This call is counterintuitive in our culture, but it actively combats our tendency towards self-sufficiency and the anxiety that comes without control. We're praying for you this week as you work to relieve yourself of anxiety and take Jesus' invitation. Thanks. Thanks for listening to this podcast from City of Light Anglican Church. We'd love to hear from you. You can find us online at cityoflightanglican.org. And now, may the light of Jesus scatter the darkness from before your path.